white people need to kind of handle the issue of racism and leave me out of it. So like when I think about that framework, I'm not very concerned about rewriting that narrative or even dealing with that narrative because that narrative is not my problem. That narrative is white people's limited imaginations. So the real question is not necessarily how I deal with that, but how does white people, how do you deal with it? And how do you deal with it apart from me having to be in your presence? Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome back to season two of Holy Heretics, and today we are joined by Dante Stewart to discuss the ongoing deconstruction of white theology, white privilege, and white spaces within modern Christianity. I want to say that personally, these discussions are not easy to undertake. Deconstructing your own white privilege oftentimes comes with shame, confusion, and personal biases, and the conviction of our own complicity in the very system we wish to topple. That's why we are delighted to have Dante Stewart with us today. He is a speaker and a writer whose work in the areas of race, religion, and politics have been featured on CNN and in the Washington Post, Christianity Today, Sojourners, The Witness, A Black Christian Collective, Comment, and elsewhere. He received his BA in sociology from Clemson University and is currently studying at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Dante, welcome to the show. Yo, what up? What's up? We're so glad to have you. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad to be with y'all. I'm glad to be here. Uh, we're, I'm really excited. I mean, I've got a fellow South Carolinian on here. I, we're probably related <laughs> at some point. Who knows, right, Dante? <laughs> exactly. So, all right. So we're going to do something different with you, Dante. We didn't tell you this, um, but if you are familiar with the show as a listener, you know that we primarily end the show with some rapid fire questions at the end, just to kind of get to know our de- our guest. Cool. We're going to flip flop that. We're going to actually start with those. So. If you're cool. cool, before we get into kind of the meat and the nitty gritty of all the things we're going to talk about, we we would love to just get to know you personally first. So we're going to ask you just rapid fire. Cool. First, first thing that comes it. to mind, just go for it. How about that? All right. Let's okay. do it. All right. Amazing. Okay. So your first question is, who would you choose to be stranded on a desert island with and why? My wife. <laughs> Great like, answer. That was easy. Like, come on, like, <laughs> okay, who's wife. the who's the last person you'd want to be stranded on an island with, and why? Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> also no. easy. Yeah. yeah. So easy. So okay. Easy. Okay. I mean, that's, that's 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 those are easy questions. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, they'll get harder. We promise. Yeah. When yeah. I say my wife, I can't leave my kids behind. Now we 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 package deal. Package so. deal. All right. You yeah, gotta we'll give it to you. It's my wife and my kids. Like we can't like no. Like, okay. No separation. It's like there. an apocalyptic movie. I okay. love apocalyptic movies and I'll do whatever I need to do to save my family. There you go. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the rest of y'all. I love y'all, but, but no. yeah, yeah, I'm sorry to you. You didn't make it to the island. All right. So who's your favorite TV or movie character and why? Oh, um, it's probably Murph in uh, Interstellar. 
Um, because as much as now I'm, I, I love sci-fi movies, I'll just tell you that. Okay. Um, I am a sci-fi head. I love. I just love sci-fi movies. I love black sci-fi uh, literature um, and, and things like that. But Murph and Interstellar really. I I love I love Murph characters particularly in some sense because you know she was able to like um, she, she was able to grow into like in, into like her own person mm-hmm. and she was willing to in some sense like you know she was she was willing to like trust the unknown and, and believe in the unknown and things like that so like. I do have like an affinity with that character, mm-hmm. uh, but I also love Denzel. No, no, no. I, I am like hands down like my favorite actor ever in in existence is Denzel Washington. Yeah, um, fantastic. And Denzel, I pretend. What's funny is like I really like Denzel in um in 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 the Book of Eli. I really like Denzel in the Book of Eli, but I also love Denzel uh, in August's August Wilson's uh uh. Played, which was adapted into film in Fences. Hmm. Uh, he did. He he bodied that role. Um, okay. Yeah, he he bodied that role. Yeah. I have to watch that on. Uh, put it on my to watch list. I appreciate nah, that. You got to. And, but but then like like when you watch Fences, you you also got to like read some books on it too. So it's it's not like one of the movies that like like yo like you you can just like just watch it. You know, because you got to gotcha. understand like. Denzel's character, the context is it's, it's a it's a lesson. It's a lesson. Like definitely watch the movie, okay. but also like look up like stuff on the on, on fences. Gary Allen, we have our homework set out for yeah, us. I know. I'm Gary. supposed to watch Ted Lasso and now fences, so I'm, I'm good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> our next question for you is: What's the best meal you've ever had, and where were you? Oh, it might have been like this Tuscan scallop and shrimp uh, oh. joint that I did. This Tuscan, I, I'm a I, I was about to say I'm a cook. I am not a cook, but I can actually cook very well. Um, so this Tuscan scallop and sh- shrimp dish that I did, it was bomb. It was legit. <laughs> Probably the best thing I ever made in my life. Oh my goodness, sounds delicious. Um, and and I make really good. My mama my mama taught me how to make mac and cheese, so I make very good mac and cheese. So anytime I'm I'm making mac and cheese or cooking like a Sunday dinner type deal, um, then then I'm being my bag. Nice. I like that. Delicious. All right. So we talked sci-fi. Um, what's the last movie you watched and what did you think about it? Oh, the last movie I watched. Let's see. What was the last movie I watched? Um, let me think. Let me think. What was the last movie I watched? Oh, you caught me off guard with this one. Um, dang. What was the last one? I, I literally watched a movie the other day. Oh, I watched <laughs> this movie. Um uh, it was called, was it called Away or Awake? I think it was called Awake. And it's just like this random movie on Netflix where like the people, <laughs> um, like I, I, I watch random movies. Like I love, I just, I'm not like a movie head like that, but mm-hmm. I do love like watching like random movies, especially, and, and now I'm being a writer. Like mm-hmm. I, I started appreciating like the genre of like scripts and screenwriting. So mm-hmm. like. I watch random movies, just paying attention to how they're building out like dialogue and character and oh, structure that. and story and narrative. So um, it's a movie uh, about this um, really centers on uh, three main characters, a woman, her two, her son and her daughter. Um, and her daughter is so everybody in the world, something happens and the, there's a plague where everybody can't go to sleep and only certain people can actually go to sleep in the film. Mm. 
And so you see what happens when humanity like loses sleep and and, in the process loses themselves. But the whole thing about going, being awake and being able to sleep again is like, you have to die. You have to like code in order for you and somebody has to revive you in order for you to be able to sleep. Oh my goodness. So like, yeah, it's, 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 it's like one of those. Interesting. yeah, it's like an apocalyptic movie. I love I love apocalyptic movies. Like so good. I don't know why, but I just absolutely adore apocalyptic movies. All right. So um, have have you seen Don't Look Up? Of course. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's the last movie of I saw. Yeah. Oh yeah. I thought it was phenomenal. I, I thought I gotta it was watch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no. It was it was it was a great movie. It was a great film. Like literally after uh, I looked at Don't Look Up. My boy, one of my one of my good friends, Jay, uh, he looked at Don't Look Up too, and I saw him tweeted about it. And then I Facetime him. We was there on we was on the phone for like two hours. Oh my! Uh, and I mean, we it started with Don't Look Up, but then it also started with like points of connection within the film. There's that. There's that. Okay, I won't I won't spoil the movie for Kelly, but yeah, don't. It, it no, was no spoil. I, I promise. Okay. I'm not I'm not gonna spoil it. Um, but yeah, there were certain scenes in the movie that like we really resonated with and we just was like talking about that and then about what matters most. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sent us on like, you know, cause we both, we both writers and, um, put out things in the world, um, uh, in, in different ways. Uh, he's in a much kind of different stratosphere, uh, or, or, or whatnot. And we were just talking about kind of in our own kind of levels that we're in, you know, as, a, as, as the Bible says in Philippians three, you know, kind of work at the level, you know, that you at like, mm-hmm. like work at the level that you at and, and trying to find, we just in the midst of trying to find a way how to, you know, work and pause and be in the embrace and be in the presence of the moments that we are at with mm-hmm. the levels that we're at as well. And don't look up, like really, really mm-hmm. made us talk and think about some stuff. Wow. Yeah. I, I got to watch it. You you have to watch no, it's, it. It's it's incredible. Um, my last question for you. I'm sure you do a lot of podcasts and interviews. What is mm-hmm. a question you wished people asked you that nobody's ever asked you before? I don't know if I'm never asked this question, but not enough people talk to me about this. Uh, and and I mean, it's partly like I don't want to call it aggravating, but like it, it is kind of like I wish like people talk to me more about writing. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and and the craft of writing. I'm not saying like, you know, I'm up there, but like, I mean, I'll be doing my thing when it comes to this writing thing. Right. And I, I wish more people would ask me about like writing stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. when, when people when people listen to podcasts, you know, sometimes they're listening for answers. Um, but but a lot of times people are also looking for processes. Hmm. Um, right. And, and, and they're looking for the ways in which. You know, we go on a journey to do that. Uh, the, the way we go on a journey, like what what books like inform certain things? Like, why did you choose this word here, hmm. or why did you choose, you know, that? So people talk to me about narrative. You know, the hmm. narrative arc of my book, which is important because you can't understand, you know, shouting the fire without you know the narrative arc of, of, of the book and the plot of the book, which is you know wrestling with the question, what does it mean to be black American and Christian? Mm. Um, and, and the ways in which those identities represent so much for so many of us. Uh, but then also I think something is, something has to be said about the ways in which like the book is crafted mm-hmm. and in conversation with other books. And, 
and 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 things like and and things like that. So that's probably what I wish more people would talked about talk mm-hmm. talk to me about. Not just simply, you know, about the white sections of the book, um, right? But like you know, the sections where you know nobody literally have never asked me about the last chapter of my book, <laughs> which I think mm-hmm. is probably the most important chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but granted, but granted, you know, at the end of the day. I think like everybody read it different and, you know, it's going to hit everybody differently. Right. Um, and as a writer, I got to be okay with that. And I got to allow that to happen. And so I don't like make a fuss about it uh, or, or whatnot. So people read it the way that they do. And I let them kind of have at it um, hmm. or whatnot. But I also wish, you know, people kind of was like, yo, like yeah. writer stuff. Let's talk about writer stuff. Mm-hmm. And what are you trying to build and things like that? Right. Huh. So I'll ask you, I mean, because you're still, in my opinion, compared to me, very young in a, in a good way. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Facts. When when did you know uh, that you had a gift for writing and for telling a story? I mean, when I, I in, in some sense, like I always like was a storyteller. I come from a family of storytellers hmm. You know, I was raised Pentecostal and, you know, being raised in black rural Southern Pentecostalism. You know, there, there is something, you know, about, uh, you know, testimony service. It's not just simply about Pentecostals, but you, black folk, you know, have that time of testimony time where yeah, there is a lot of in service, a time where those who come to church are a lot of time to stand up and tell what the Lord did to them that week, did mm-hmm. for them that week. Uh, what ails them when they come in the church, they're able to gripe and complain. Um, so in some sense, it's like, it's a moment that's therapeutic. Hmm. Um, hmm. They're, they're also able to release. And so it's cathartic. Right. Uh, but then also they're able to join together in a certain type of call, a response and a celebratory moment to say, okay, like some would begin like Sister Debbie when I when I was younger, some would begin with a scripture. Uh, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And so, yeah. And so you hear this type of call and response. And so it's out of this story. This It is the embodiment and the performance of this lived experience of black life as it relates to one's experience with God inside of an anti-black racist society. And so testimony service would would be full of stories. It would be their stories uh, around the dinner tables would be stories in, in our homes with the books of Maya Angelou and and and, and Toni Morrison and and Margaret Walker. There, there will be stories that surrounded our worlds and, and, and things like that. And so as a youngin, uh, I would be like a young child preacher. So mm-hmm. I'd be the young kid that's like up in the pulpit. Uh, I was a young kid that was singing, so I would sing all the time. Uh, I was a young kid who loved reading um, mm. and, and things like that. And my mama is a storyteller too, so like I can talk with my mama right now, and we could be on the phone. We could be on the phone for like thirty minutes. I could talk to my grandma, be on the phone for like thirty minutes, and my grandma, and my grandma, and my mama, at some point, they're going to share a story. They're going <laughs> to be. They're, they're going to point to a story that's based on what we're talking about, and so. Like my mom and my grandma, my daddy, my granddaddy before he before dementia kind of took over his mind. Um, I come from a family of storytellers, so that was woven into like who I am and who I was, hmm. and, and and things like that. And so as I got older, um, there there was a point in time where you know I 
I, I, I wasn't always a writer per se, but I did. I was somebody who always loved stories. And so when I really actually started writing, there was already in me what was already invested. Hmm. I was already a storyteller. It's just that I had to find my pen. I had to find my pad. I had to find my blank page. And when that started to happen, then I had to find the discipline to prove again and again and again to myself that I'm actually a writer. Hmm. So like each essay is a certain type of proving that I am a writer. And this is not like, okay, trying to prove myself to somebody else, though insecure oftentimes the places that we're most gifted in also represents the places we're most insecure in. Mm -hmm. So proving myself is oftentimes something I have to be mindful of continually because I struggle with insecurity as as, as a writer, as an artist. But I mean, in the sense of like James Clear book, um, atomic habits where he says that we don't fall to the level of our goals. We rise to the level. We don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And that the question we must ask ourselves is what is the person um, I want to become going to accomplish today? Uh, what is that person going to do? And every action is a vote. It is a proving that this is the type of person I'm going to become. So every single day that I wake up and go in front of my books and like my boy Jay say, you know, when I pray at the altar of creativity mm-hmm. or if I pray at the altar of Baldwin or if I pray at the altar of Toni Morrison or Tony K. Bombaro, Gloria Naylor or even contemporary writers like Disha Filyar and Robert Jones and Mateo uh, and, and Maurice um, and Tia and Hanif and, and Jasmine Ward and Imani and Eddie and Sarah Broom. When I pray at their altar, sitting with them, as Jason said, I know that there is something waiting for me in the end. Mm-hmm. So when I go back to the page, I know that a story is coming. Wow. Something is coming because I've shown up. Right. And that indeed proves to me continually like, yeah, I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. This is what I do. And I so I'm that. trying to expand that and get better and continue to grow in that. Yeah, wow. and you've you've already done that. You've already shown your discipline uh, in your book, shouting shouting into the fire. Correct, right? Yeah, so it's shouting in the fire. I shouting mean, though, in the fire. Though, 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 if we got to shout into some fires, I'm willing to shout into some <laughs> fires. Can you? As well. Can you? I love that. I mean, Sorry gramma- about that. Gra- grammatically, like that's straight too. Like I ain't I ain't mad at that at all. Like grammatically, <laughs> just, that's straight. <laughs> well, thank you. What does that phrase mean to you? So shout in the fire. It's like it's like in 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 like praise of James Baldwin's "The Fire Next Time," right? Um, Baldwin writes "The Fire Next Time" in 1963, uh, which is really you know this long kind of argument and essay. Uh, um, I would suggest you know some people really think that you know the essay is really simply about you know Baldwin's idea on American democracy and trying to save the American project, which that's too limited, mm-hmm. you know. And oftentimes when people talk about black people and what we offer to the world and the art that we produce, oftentimes people see it simply as, you know, see it simply as what we can teach white people or how we can save these experiments. And I mean, political experiments uh, uh, or, or, or whatnot, or um, uh, kind of state sanctioned or, or, or experiments uh, or, or nation states. That's what I meant to say. So these kind of nation state experiments that oftentimes don't take into account our full humanity. So uh, it's not that like Baldwin's fire next time is not some type of salvation or education, but Baldwin's fire next time is a, a, at the heart 
uh, the argument uh, for the beauty, the complexity, and the necessity of liberation within Black life in, mm. the, in our Black worlds. And so for me, shouting in the fire is a reflection and in, 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 in inspiration of the fire next time. When Baldwin at the last page where he says, you know, that, that, that God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time, you know, it is, it is in some sense a prophecy uh, about a future in which the country uh, and in some sense the world, what, what type of future uh, will we live in under this fire and this judgment hmm. um, uh, uh, um, uh, or, or whatnot? What, what would this future look like for places and people uh, that do not take seriously uh, the humanity and the value and worth of black life? Hmm. This is that future. And so shouting in the fire is trying to write into that future. It is first and foremost, a reflection and an argument for black futures hmm. that we have survived fires. Um, it wow. is also in inspiration of ta Coates, who writes in the Vanity Fair. Um, I want to say that this was the Vanity Fair um, project uh, that covered Breonna Taylor, the death of Breonna Taylor in 2020. Hmm. Um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates writes this essay called The Great Fire. So this metaphor, fire, it is a metaphor for the ways in which, you know, I don't know if I can curse on your podcast, but like this yes, issue is can. burning. Yeah. Like, 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 like this, like this joint is like burning up. Like, like, like when we look around us, when we think about like the fire, when we think about what fire does to us, fire not only destroys, if we think about a house on fire, mm -hmm. if a house is on fire, it will destroy the house. But then also you got to worry about the chemicals and the suffocation and the ways in which fire cuts out, cuts off our ability to breathe. So my last chapter is entitled Breath, mm -hmm. which is the ability to exhale beyond the fire. It's the ability to exhale. So the last line says, we are exhausted, but we catch our breath again. So it's like alluding back to that thematic thrust of shouting in the fire. It is it is the ability to shout as, you know, the three Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter three, uh, they were able to dance or as black folk would do, shout. It is mm -hmm. shouting. It is where our bodies uh, become, in some sense, the expression and the connection back to Africa, where black folk uh, would dance in a ring around one another. And it would be this very spiritual moment of dancing and being together. And the body becomes a place of revelation and communion. And so it is centering the ability of black folk to do, as Lucille Clifton say, that something has tried to kill me and has failed. So to be able to shout in the fire when I think about why I named it that, it is about that. It is about the ability for black folk of black people to be alive. But it's also the ability in some sense to learn and to grow and to purify. And so it is also a journey. It is an intimate journey of my own failures. It is the ways in which, you know, to think about the subtitle, an American epistle. It is a letter of the ways in which, you know, being black and Christian and American uh, oftentimes, as, as we think about this American story, not not we don't rare, rarely, if ever, do we take into account or to consideration the ways in which 
you know, race and religion are so tied together with our various lived experiences. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be the living epistle, a letter, my life, you know, my little story is a epistle, a, 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 a message about what this country does to us uh, and what we do to ourselves, but also about the way we learn how to grow up and mature and get better. Mm. Mm. Wow. I, I just want to follow up here. You mentioned in the questions above that uh, most people don't get to the last chapter. Why is that? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can speak on why, why that is, um, you know, cause I don't, I don't want to, I don't, you know, yeah, I just don't want to do it. I don't know. I, I, right. I mean, Fair enough. I mean, I, yeah, I just don't, I, I just don't know. I think, I think people resonate. So if I had to give a reason, I think some people resonate so much with like the stories of like, yo, what does it mean to be black and white space? Hmm. Um, that that and and for good reason, you know, because I mean, I just tell the very honest, visceral story of my failure and and what white social space has made me, and what it what it taught me to be and become, especially toward my wife and toward other black folk. Um, but I think I think people resonate so much with those stories, especially with the story of my grandmother um, and my grandfather uh, and my mother uh, and my wife and my friends. Uh, that, that oftentimes, you know, in some sense, like that is what hits them most narratively and that's Absolutely. what they resonate with most. And I, and I, and I give them that, yeah. um, or, or, or what not. I think breath, you know, for me, the reason why I wanted to write that joint is because I thought about, you know, 2020 and let me, let me put a shameless plug in real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a book that, that my boy, Jason Reynolds wrote, it was an incredible, just brilliant, brilliant mind, just it's just absolutely incredible. It just uh, released uh, this past Tuesday and it's called Ain't Burned All the Bright. And mm -hmm. it is a book in three long sentences, an incredible, absolutely phenomenal book that I would suggest everybody read for their devotional time or just simply if you just want something that's going to help you like find that ability to kind of release and he exhale through the lens of a young black kid watching the events of 2020. Hmm. Brilliant book. Wow. And so as Jason wrote his book, like my chapter breath is, 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 is very similar to that. It is me trying to get to the end of that story and me writing to the end of that story and saying, this is how we release. This is how we exhale. And the ways that we exhale is we pay attention to everything that brought us to this moment and made us who we are. Um, because wow. at the end of the chapter, like literally I go into this almost sermonic gesture where the lines, where, where the paragraphs are just long, you know, and, thing, and, and things like that. And so narratively, the paragraph, the ending paragraphs are long, but the last few sentences are very short. It is like taking long breaths and then in the end, you end and mm -hmm. you stop. Wow. And so it's learning to, you need to take time to breathe. But when you do breathe, there's something that you must breathe in and there's something you must let go and mm -hmm. release. Nice. And so that's part of it. I appreciate that. I that. Wow. Yeah, Thank facts. you. You know, I've never like legit, nobody never, I've never talked to anybody about that. Wow. <laughs> so I'm gonna need to I'm gonna need to like recent I'm gonna need to re-listen to this so I can talk yeah, about that more. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I need this. Yeah, I, I, need to, I need this audio. Yeah. Well, thanks for answering that question. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. So I, I do want to ask you about the three identities, black, Christian and American. But I, I actually want to ask you something a little bit more sensitive. Um, and I'm cool. going to see see if I can do this correctly. Cool. You are a writer, creative uh, and intellectual. And part of your identity is you also played football at Clemson. Um, mm -hmm. And as a black man in the South – it's very safe to be an athlete, to be a football player. That's um, stereotypically an expectation. It's not an expectation for most people in parts, mm -hmm. parts of the South for a black man to be intelligent, educated, an artist with a voice. How have you balanced those two identities? One as um, – Here's what you expect of me and the other as a voice of resistance to those expectations. Yeah, I think it's tough. Yeah, bro. Because like you said, yeah, that's a very sensitive, that's a very sensitive topic in a sense of, and it's not sensitive because we don't know it's true, but it's sensitive because oftentimes people don't know how to collectively talk about it. And I think mm -hmm. particularly because white people don't know how to collectively talk about what it means to view like, like view another human being as nothing or only one thing. Yeah. And I say that in terms of like the LeBron James shut up and dribble, right? I mean, that's it is a, a national stereotype that we like our black folk as long as they are entertaining us and as yeah, long facts. as they are doing something for us, we don't necessarily like it then when they step into their full humanity and when we have to share space with them as it relates facts. to all these other areas. So, yeah. No, no, facts, facts. And and I think and I think like like one of the things Toni Morrison said, you know, in, in, in some sense, she, she was like, yo, like, like white people need to kind of handle the issue of racism and leave me out of it. <laughs> so like when I think about that framework, I'm not very concerned about rewriting that narrative or even dealing with that narrative because mm -hmm. that narrative is not my problem. That narrative is white people's limited imaginations. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the real question is not necessarily how I deal with that, but how does white people, how do you deal with it? Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with it apart from me having to be in your presence for you to even actually deal with it? And this is at the at, and this really is at the heart of so much of these kind of quote unquote conversations regarding race is that oftentimes the presence of black people in those conversation is a way for white people to evade how terrible white people view themselves, how terrible they view other people. And when I say terrible, I mean it is it is as Toni Morrison say a profound neurosis. You have a serious problem if, in order for you to feel like somebody else, feel like somebody, somebody else must be kneeling down. Mm. That is a profound problem with one's own sense of your humanity. It mm -hmm. is a destructive problem, and it's actually a pervasive problem. It is a problem that has been given theological justification when we think about, you know, these theologies that that prioritize the spiritual versus the lived and the body experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we see in the ways in which, you know, as 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 uh, Desmond Tutu famously said, the story, uh, the, the story of the missionaries that when the missionaries came to Africa, uh, they, they invited Africans to pray. And when they opened their eyes 
the Africans had the land. So before they came, the Africans had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. They brought them together and they said, let us pray. When they opened their eyes, the Africans had the land. The people had the had the had the Bibles and the missionaries had the land. Right. And so it's this narrative that in some sense is spiritualization of uh, of kind of our lived experiences. So like like it's Tony Morris to say like that's a profound that's a profound, you know, that's a profound condition that white people must de- must deal with. And so for me, I'm not really concerned about whether, you know, one thinks of me to be, you know, a, a novelty or, or or how does my work stack up against these stereotypes and limited imagination? Now, I do my work and I do my work for my people and I mm-hmm. do my work for those who want to see better and do better and be better. And whether people think of that as, oh, my goodness, like, wow, this dude is like so like, oh, my goodness, like you, you were an athlete. I mean, I don't care about that. Like at the end of the day, like. You know, like, I mean, I I can't control what they do or what they think, you know, or what they try to make us. Mm -hmm. You know, what I can control is what I think about myself. Um, And that's the harder thing to do. You know, that that that, you know, June Jordan, the poet says that, you know, I need to love myself and respect myself as if everything depended on my ability to have self-love and self-respect. And uh, the ability to have self-love and self-respect is the ability to mature not just simply to evade and be very careful. It's not evading the pervasiveness and the power of white supremacy and anti-blackness. But this is saying that I don't live at the mercy of white people's limited imaginations or their value system. So hmm. I don't know how to answer that. All, all that to say, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> well, so I do want to put that question back into white people's hands and say, that is a question you must answer for yourself yeah. uh, without me. Well, and I, I love agree. that because I think this is the the tension in having these conversations because I think so many times um, white people come to uh, African Americans and and say, "Please tell me, you know, can you do the work for me?" Basically, and and in in a weird way, I, I've actually had this happen. So part of my theological journey and part of my deconstruction journey was to become a pacifist. I truly Mm -hmm. believe Jesus was nonviolent and I believe we are called to be nonviolent. And so when I began talking about that, I I mean, it's amazing the backlash I got and, and, and that's not what, why we're here, but, but what I continued to get from people was prove this to me. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't want to do the work myself. And so you just need to tell me why this is right. And and I finally I just refused. I'm like, look, I, I can't I can't do the work for you. I, I read the damn books. If you don't want to read them, that's fine. Um, and, and I do feel like that there's a little bit of that, of that um, when it comes to white folk coming to you to say, help us. And mm-hmm. we, we don't know what we don't know. And yet we also, mm-hmm. I think, need to do the the work ourselves um, and then potentially come back and go, hey, here's what we found. Here's what I've been enlightened. What do you say? What do you think? As opposed to just, hey, Dante, just come on. Can you help us? You know, and I, I think that's a, mm-hmm. it's a reversion of that entertain us to death again. So anyways. No, no, I no, I, I, I feel it. And that, you know, I, I feel like it's a way to oftentimes like evade, like it's a, it's a way to evade and, mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. So like, when I think about even my work, like that I'm doing right now at some, at one point in time, when I was in white evangelical spaces, like, I think I was very, I was concerned and very much so overly concerned with like teaching white people 
like to be better. Right. Um, but then I, I saw the limits of that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that you can only get so far in educating people and trying to get them to become more moral. You can only get so far if those people don't see the problems or see other people as worth as much love as they want for themselves. Mm. So when that happens, you know, you can, you can try and teach them, you can try and give books and, and everything like that, but there's limits to that because they have no kind of, they have no reason to change. And when you have no reason or desire to change, then any type of thing that, that, that someone comes to you with, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's useful, you will exploit it. You will exploit it, mm. you know, but if it's stressful, you're going to evade it. And oftentimes, you know, the kind of psychological stress to deal with whiteness and to actually deal with it the way we talk about it, like like not just simply like, OK, all right, here's this book by this black person. And then here's the white person who wrote this, a similar book, but from a Christian perspective, like <laughs> but like like not am, am I lying? Like, no, I, right. no. Am I lying? Like, no. literally, like I'm sure y'all have experienced that. I haven't right. seen that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's this book about justice. And here's a book we actually really want to recommend by this white person who comes from a Christian perspective. And so when they say that, it is this value system that believe that like, like the white Christian is first and foremost, the final authority about faith in life mm-hmm. and that white people are the ones who really understand justice are the ones who really understand this. And so like people, when people believe that way, they will not see things from their perspective. Like, but then for the people who do, I'm thinking even particularly like my friends, like who are white, who, who did want to learn, they won't stay long in that space like you, you know, because that space will also push them and suffocate them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and sadly, when when those in your position leave those spaces, you know, there's nowhere for you to go because you have been so disciple uh, to believe that there are no alternatives to whiteness. So mm-hmm. white young, young white people, they or older white people, when they leave like conservative white spaces, they go through this long year after year after year after year experience of a wilderness, you know, and, 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 and so often that it, it it is disorienting, not not simply because of the trauma that's wrapped up into the the distrust um, out of a community that harms and hurts you, but oftentimes it's disorienting because you don't know where to go because nobody taught you, particularly white people, nobody showed you a different type of way of being human and being mm-hmm. Christian, and mm-hmm. so it's like. Like it's like it's like hella disorienting, um, and then it's like what what this is when people talk. Well, what are the third spaces? What's this and what's that? And so I want to acknowledge that 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 we I think that process needs to happen, but then like we also got to be honest about like you know oftentimes the process is disorienting as well because white people have been so disciple and socialized to only believe that the only people who can offer them something you know is somebody white. And so that's where you get like mm. these young white progressives who leave progressive spaces, but who don't leave whiteness, you know, <laughs> and, and, and things like that. And I don't harp on them and I don't harp on people that much because I, you know, I don't harp on that demographic that much because I feel like people use that demographic as weapons. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, like young white people leaving and and deconstructing and becoming this and becoming that, you know, and this and that and this and that about, you know, like 
they they haven't done this or they haven't done that. And for me, I feel like people weaponize the trauma of that experience. And I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. But also I do want to say like, yo, like the reason why a lot of people also struggle, like one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons, like not not even the reason, because there's no like final thing. But like one of the reasons many people struggle so much is because like their worlds are white. And when your world is upended and Mm -hmm. you see your world that's white, it like like the the process of rebuilding a new world. I'm thinking about your own personal world and your world as a social social ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard hard process that some of us when we, because like our community has oftentimes been so tightly knit based on the common and collective experience. Some of us don't go through that process because we already have alternative spaces, right. either in faith communities or not that mm-hmm. we can gather in. And white people have those spaces as well, but like. I feel like in those spaces, like the shame that's built into like, like trying to find alternative religious spaces, spiritual spaces is just a weighty thing for so many young white people in right. their experience. Yeah, you have, you have such great points. And I think, I think the tension is, you know, I would love to talk to you about um, BLM and James Baldwin and other theologians that you would recommend. There's a, there's an advice seeking desire um, and, and it's hard to resist that. And, and what, you know, is it a matter of race or intelligence? It's, it's so hard to, to hold back from, from asking you to help, help me. No, um, I like talking about James Baldwin. We were talking about Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about Baldwin, but I also, I kind of want to s- kind of weave through the, the content as, as y- you might say, and, and ask what was your personal experience of leaving that white evangelical space did you have to go through a process of healing? Were you angry? Did you like oh, come yes. straight into liberation theology? Like oh, what, yeah, no, what was Dante no. the person with a soul's experience of, yeah. of leaving that space? Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was disorienting as hell. Like it was mm-hmm. terrible mm-hmm. Um, because I hurt my wife. I hurt others. Um, you know, I was hurt and, and did a lot of hurting along the way. Um, and then when when you do that and you you're inside of a community that you thought was one well you were led to believe like they were one thing and that's really honestly what it is it's not so much that like white evangelicalism is good mm-hmm. as much as we are socialized to believe that they are better than everything else okay when in, when in actuality white evangelicalism is but one experience but one culture. Mm-hmm. But we are we are led to believe that everything we experience from the first until we leave, like like until that process of disorientation happened, we think that these spaces are the best spaces ever. Like <laughs> right. we think wow. like we, this is the space like we met God in. And so, and then the question becomes like after that, like, 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 and I hate when people ask me this question, like, yo, did you what what good thing did you did you learn from white evangelicalism? Like and I tell them, like, if I if there was anything that was good that I did learn, those things were always filtered to, through a, a, a lens that wanted to evade the terrible kind of conditions that learning took place in. Hmm. So learning and spirituality doesn't just take place by itself, but it takes place within a story, within a culture, within a community. So if one taught me how, if one showed me how to fall deeper in love with the Bible, the politics of that quote unquote deeper love was deeper evasion of white supremacy. And so we see this 
in Donald Trump. We see this in white evangelicalism and, and, and abortion. We see this in white evangelicalism, politics and race and, and gender and sexuality, that oftentimes these forms and modes and ideas of reading the Bible and theology are so wrapped up in a certain type of politics and narrative that's not rooted in you know, you know, a, a, a liberating idea of faith, a, a, a honest telling of our historical narratives, but oftentimes is rooted in a certain type of conservative tradition of reading the Bible that just wants to reinforce power. Right. Um, and so if anything, you know, was learned in that space, it's oftentimes filtered and woven into this power dynamic. And so like when I think about like um, leaving I had to, it was a long process. It was hmm. not an, an immediate process. It was a long process. It, it was a process of, you know, I negotiated, you know, with people. I tried to teach them. I tried to stay there. Um, but then, you know, the weight of the apathy and the hostility, and then me becoming awake and turning to blackness as a place of, of learning, a place of growing, a place of sacredness. There was no way possible for me to stay in that space. So when I had well, read James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time for the first time and read James Cone, when I read, when I started going to museums again and learning black history, then I saw white Christianity for what it was. It was not a, it was not a, a tradition that took seriously my black life. And if it's not a tradition that takes seriously the humanity of others, then how can we say that that is a good tradition that in some sense presses people deeper and closer into Jesus. Like if, if in some sense, you know, these traditions utilize their, their way of being in the world as a way to reinscribe social power, then how does that, how should that reframe how we think about the goodness of a space? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. And so like when I thought about leaving, I had to leave so much behind. I left friendships that I thought were friendships when in actuality, those friendships were only in so far, in so much as I was silent or other, or my wife was silent or others were silent. And so as Alice Walker would say, no one is your friend when they're, when that friendship depends on your silence and your inability and right to grow. Mm. And so what I saw, that was no friendship. It was transaction. And so wow. leaving that space, it meant that I had to go back to the wells of blackness, to the worlds of blackness. I had to go back around us. I had to be around us. I had to find a way to forgive myself. I had to find a way to apologize and have courage and have, as Bell Hooks say, the will to change. And so mm -hmm. as I develop, you know, a better vocabulary through reading and, and, and literature and listening and and things, and as I better develop a maturity as as with my with my friendships and my wife and and my mentors, then I was able to leave and say, you know, I'm I'm past that. You know, and I was angry, you know, at the hostility and the apathy. And oftentimes, you know, my anger. Uh, this was the kind of paradox of it. Like my anger was the thing that made me leave, but my anger also was the thing that kept me centering them. <laughs> so it's one thing to be angry and to leave by the evangelicalism. It's another thing to be angry and to continue to center them uh, six months, a year down the road. This is why I get tired of people talking about religion and keep talking about white evangelicals as mm -hmm. if white evangelicals are the most important religious experience in America right. or the only one. 
in fact, white evangelical is the most marketable because this is how things have been set up. It is a strategy for them to stay relevant and for them to stay in power. So you're going to see white evangelicals attack critical race theory. You're going to see white evangelicals. And I'm not even thinking about white evangelicals. I'm thinking about evangelicals in general. You know, I'm thinking about evangelicals of this vein of this very kind of conservatism, you know, or, or, or Christians that's, 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 that's trying to keep the world that is built on, you know, injustice and inhumanity the same way. So any Christian tradition starts trying to reinscribe social structures and narratives that devalue and destroy the humanity of others. I'm thinking about these Christians, whether they're evangelical, Pentecostal, Catholic, Catholic, Anglican, or not. Right. Um, and, and, and oftentimes, you know, these, these traditions, you know, staying angry at these traditions, you know, would not allow me to explore what blackness had to offer. Mm-hmm. And when I, mm-hmm. when I, when I, when I started turning and reading and censoring us as a space, both of divine revelation and practical spirituality and insight and a way of living and being and showing up in the world, then my kind of caring for what white evangelicals did or thought, it started to like, it it, lim- it, it went down drastically mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In, in ways that, you know, I'm only kind of hip to what's going on in white evangelicalism. Only insofar as I'm connected to it on Twitter and what people say on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love that point because I think it resonates universally with everyone who is deconstructing white evangelicalism because it, it's something that I see primarily on Instagram and on Twitter that we continue to give them um, space in our hearts and our minds. And as you said, we continue to center them, to make them – the uh, entire conversation, even though we are vehemently disagreeing with them, we're still entertaining their voices. We're still being combative mm-hmm. with them as opposed to what I have you know, tried to do is to be like, you know what? Uh, I'm done with them. I don't have to listen to them. I don't need to follow them. I don't need to troll them. I don't need to respond to every knee-jerk reaction that – uh, has come forth today from the white Theo bros or from, you know, John MacArthur or, or any of the names that um, manifest white evangelicalism. And I, I think we all have to give ourselves permission to to walk away, not just physically, but spiritually and mentally as well to be like, you know what, I'm done. So to follow up with that, where, where did you go? Um, what did you find besides – your own ancestral tradition. Um, mm-hmm. Did did you find another spiritual movement, or where are yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So I went, I went, I went back to the black church. So I'm in ministry. I'm in, I'm in ministry at at, at a Tabernacle Baptist Church. Okay, um, which is a part of the Progressive National Baptist Convention. Um, so I went there. I went back to church, but I also, you know, I I brought in my religious experience, bro. Like. Like I found meaning in a multitude of spaces, traditions, and environments, uh, and, and 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 leaving gave me a particular awareness to say, "This is who I am. This is how I show up in the world." Uh, Christianity is a story that gives me meaning and is a meaningful part of my identity, but it's not the exhaustiveness or the totality of who I am. 
And so when I stand in the world as that person, that allows me to stand into the potentials of a particular tradition while also standing with alongside other people to listen to the echoes of the divine within their tradition. And so when we think about God speaking in the world, we think about revelation, uh, we, we say that the whole world declares the glory and the goodness of God. And so I, it's one thing to just simply say that. It's another thing to actually think about practical spirituality as it relates mm-hmm. to embodying the truth of that text. If indeed we believe that in the world is the echoes and the whisper of the divine, then we should be the type of people who spot the divine in the, in the other. Mm-hmm. And so I started to, you know, lean on what to do the traditions uh, or, or whatnot. And I think the most immediate thing um, for me um, is, is was one of one of the I took a, a beautiful class on Islam and my, my teacher was Muslim mm-hmm. um, and it was an absolutely beautiful, beautiful class. And and it taught me so much about their tradition and the continuity and the discontinuity between our traditions and the kind of stories that connect connected us, but also disconnected us in the ways in which we both showed up in the world. So I was in a class in seminary, intro to Islam in my world religions course, intro to Islam taught by Dr. Muadiya, uh, who's who's Muslim, and uh, uh, um, uh, the 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 teacher's assistant who was also Muslim. And this is a class of, of Christian seekers, um, you know, people who wouldn't, who who just love the idea of spirituality, wouldn't, but wouldn't necessarily identify with any tradition. Um, and we were all in this experience, rooting ourselves in the traditions of Islam and learning as much as we can. I stand in the world as a Christian, as a black progressive Christian, but also I stand in the world as somebody who also is in conversation with other Christians, uh, who's in conversation with white evangelicals and black evangelicals. I was in conversation with Asian uh, American evangelicals and Hispanic evangelicals, uh, but also in conversation with people who are Catholic and people who are not Christian, people who are Muslim, people who are Buddhist and things like that. And I think, and I think for me, you know, it is about standing in the world as a particular person there. I don't lose nothing from my identity by standing in the posture like Jesus, when G- this is one of the most beautiful texts in the Bible, I think, you know, and uh, that just I've resonated so much with, like the disciples uh, come upon this person and they are healing uh, other people and they're, 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 they're healing other people. And the disciples started griping and complaining. And Jesus tells them that, yo, like if somebody is, you know, like if they're, you know, and, and they're doing it in the name of Jesus. And we know that in, through 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 tradition and history and uh, and things like that, like the name of Jesus is not just saying you know I baptize you in the name of Jesus, but it is about a way of showing up in the world that is profoundly concerned about the ordering of life mm. and the destruction to which humanity, uh, 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 the destruction to which humanity embodies, and this ability to imagine and act and perform within the world that wants to embody the fullness of what God has for us. Uh, and that is the freedom, the liberation, and the connectedness and the interconnectedness of all of life. Uh, that that when we talk about glory, when people talk about the next life or the next things, it is about this this interconnectedness. It is about this fullness and liberation and wholeness and healing. So this person is healing and embodying 
embodying what Jesus wants to embody. And like, this is the name of Jesus is this ability to see the world and perform in ways that profoundly concerned about healing and wholeness. And the disciples complain. And Jesus says, for those who are not against us are for us. And the thing about it in that text, the, 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 the relevant thing in that text is we don't get any social religious uh, or religious markers for that person. Hmm. They are just the person. And I think, you know, it's, the text would suggest that our posture should be spotting divine, the divine and affirming the divine in another person. And not just simply griping and complaining uh, mm -hmm. or, or whatnot, because we believe ourselves to be close to Jesus. And so that's where I went. And, you know, first and foremost, I went to black literature um, and, and black art and black culture and our black lives. But then also it broke me open to be able to listen to others as well. Mm. I love that. Wow. And and so I think beautiful. that, yeah, I would say, too, it's convicting because most of us approach our own spiritual tradition through our own lens, and we haven't read widely. Uh, we we haven't we've ignored maybe liberation theology. We have ignored James Cone. We we've ignored those voices, and or we've just never heard them. Um, and so, being able to step out of that and and walk toward a new tradition, uh, you begin to get a different lens, not only on God, but on scripture, on, on the gospel itself. So yeah, 100, 100. And I think, you know, and, and even like that, when we think about liberation theology and James Cone, like, like James Cone, and if, and if Cone was alive today, Cone would point you to so many other people. Mm, like Cone, mm -hmm. Cone would point you to the womanist. Like Cone would point you to Malcolm X, Cone would point you to 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 others who to James Baldwin and Toni Morrison and Tony K. Bambara. Uh, and Cone would want you to know the name of Renita Weems and Emily Towns and and Alice Walker and Gail Yee. He would want you to know Kelly Brown Douglas and he would want you to know Bell Hooks and he would want you to know uh, Gloria Naylor uh, and, and Maya Angelou as sources of what God wants to speak into this world. And so, you know, when people think about, you know, black traditions, we have a multitude of traditions and Cone would want people to explore that as well. And I would agree that oftentimes, you know, people say, well, I read my James Cone and I'm done. All right. Know, and things like that. When, with, when James Cone would want you to say, well, no, uh, he was, he was saying in his high pitched voice, uh, no, I don't think, no, 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 no. Uh, he would want you to explore the fullness of, of, of what we have to offer. And not just us, but any group that has been marginalized in the environment, in the society and in the church. Mm -hmm. These are the people that we need to be listening to. Yeah. And these are the people who point the way forward for us. Wow. Absolutely. Dante, this has been incredible. Um I, I I don't really know how to end this because I want to keep asking you questions. So mm -hmm. I, I guess we're going to have to come back. But is there anything that we failed to bring up that you were just dying to talk about today? No. No. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Well, well, good. We are okay. <laughs> well, I know your book has been out for a while, but can you just reference it again and direct our listeners yeah, to sure. where, where they can not only get your book, but where, where can they find you online? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my book is entitled Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. Um, and it is my intimate journey, a memoir through essays 
of wrestling with the question, what does it mean to be black, American, and Christian, and the ways in which those identities and experiences intersect in the most beautiful and terrible way as possible. Um, people can buy it. I would suggest that they buy it from Black-owned bookstores. I'm thinking of Kindred Stories in mm. Houston. I'm thinking of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm thinking of Mahogany Bookstore in Washington, D.C., um, and then also my local bookstore in Augusta, which is not black owned, but it is my local bookstore and they've supported me amazingly, hmm. uh, the book tavern. So if you do purchase it, purchase it from any one of those areas, uh, one of those store, any one of those stores, you can do it online, uh, support them, uh, follow them, buy your books from them, um, and, and things like that. And if people want to follow me or connect with me, my, uh, handles are at Stuart Dante C. Um, or you can go visit me on my website, DanteCSteward.com. Perfect. And we will put all of that in the show notes. So Dante, thank, thank you so you. much. It's really been mm-hmm. humbling and I've learned a great deal. Uh, I can't tell you how uh, much we appreciate sharing this space with you. So we really mm-hmm. appreciate it. For sure. For sure. So good to be with y'all. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.